This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode 15. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey guys, welcome back to the final episode of International Months. Again, these are individuals who are part of the Low Level Hell Discord community, and so if you want to be a part of that, just check out our Discord group. You can find that on our website, www.thelowlevelhellpodcast.com. Just scroll down to the bottom, you'll find links to that, as well as all of our social media, such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our Patreon page, where you can support the channel financially. Speaking of Patreon, I do want to say thank you to all of our new patrons this month in April. Joining us, we have Michael P. Fleming, Connor Henneman, J.T. Crandall, Jeff R., Jack Grievison, T.M. Good, and Jeet Sikumaran. I hope I uh, said that right. Appreciate all that support, and if you're interested in taking a look at that, just like I said, head on over to that website. You can also support the channel, of course, by leaving a rating and uh, leaving a comment down wherever you're listening to this show. Now, this week we're joined by a member of the community, goes by Gadget. Kevin is a great guy and has some really cool stories from his time in the Royal Navy learning to fly. Uh, while his time in the Navy was somewhat short, uh, I think it was a great look at the training pipeline and some of the opportunities that students had to fly different aircraft. And beyond that, Kevin's just a really good dude and very active in the community. So if you want to have a chat with uh, guys like him from around the world, uh, you can take a look at the Low Level Held Discord. It's totally free, but admittedly, sometimes it can be a little addicting. So be warned. All right, let's get into it and we'll be back in the wrap up. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. We've got Kevin Bryant here with us from the, uh, the United Kingdom. He was a Royal Navy Sea King pilot. How are you doing, Kevin? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm oh, not too bad. Uh, like I said, a little out of breath because I had to <laughs> run upstairs. <laughs> I don't know why my power suddenly went out, but uh, we're, we'll fight through it. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. Um, you need to go feed the mice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I think I knocked something loose earlier, and maybe I just caused the shorts. I don't know. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, like we were just chatting before, you know, you got a little experience in uh, a couple different aircraft. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and yeah, well, how you, how you got into flying. Uh, right. Well, as I said, as you, as you just mentioned, my name's Kevin, uh, basically Gizmo on the, uh, on the forums and, uh, in BSD and stuff like that. Um, basically I was a, joined the Royal Navy at the ripe old age of 19 as a, uh, as a pilot um and went through the whole flying training there um i'd always wanted to be a pilot um ever since i was a little little kid as most people do mm. and um i think that stemmed from my 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 great granddad he was a an air mechanic in the second world war on lancasters mm. and then my granddad was also a navigator on uh, shackleton's in the asw role before uh, transversing onto cameras and stuff like that. So uh, there was a, a bit of aviation within the family. And um, I just always had, you know, always had this, this, this drive to, to want to be a pilot. And I remember um, being at school and in the careers, 
And people were saying, yeah, right, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? I couldn't have been no more than about 12, uh, probably about 11, actually. And said, came over to me and said, what do you want to be? I said, well, I want to be a pilot in the Royal Air Force. Mm. And I remember the careers guy turning around to me and looking at me and saying, well, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a great thing, but there's very, very few people who get to do that. So you might want to have an option, option B. <laughs> and I, t- <laughs> and I turned around and I said to him, I said, well, who, who are you to tell me that I can't do that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know what I need to achieve and I know what I need to do in order to get to that or to, 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 to at least give myself the best opportunity of being that. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to strive for. Um, so I did that. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate, um, that out of all of the people that you know, not only aspired to and then applied to that, I actually got to achieve that goal. Um, so yeah, I joined in 1991 as a fresh faced 19 year old. Um, I'd only just turned 19 as well, straight out of A levels, which is, uh, it's like the one after. So yeah, I don't know what that equates to in America, but, uh, pre, pre university. Right. Yeah. I'd be coming out of high school. So for, for you guys and, and, you know, I'm conscious things may have changed and over time or whatever, but, but when you join, uh, the service over there, is it, you, you apply to the Navy, you apply to the Air Force, or is it just kind of a combined thing and then you get parceled out? Uh, you, you apply to either or. Okay. Um, I mean, during my time, um, um, I applied to the Air Force. My, my primary thing is I wanted to be a fast jet jock. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to fly around in um, either the Harrier or the Jaguar at the time. Mm. Uh, single seat, um, low level, just flying around with my ass on fire, just yeah. yee-hawing all over the place. Um, so I applied to the Air Force initially, and um, you know, I went through all the air crew selection. And I mean, I was a member of the Air Training Corps, which is kind of like the kiddies version of the Air Force, you know, like a, I don't know if you have it over there, you know, like the um, cadet, cadet Force. Yeah, yeah, we've got a couple uh, of different things like that, yeah. Yeah, so I was in there and uh, from the age of 13, um, just to kind of get, you know, just to see if it was you know, the, the military style was kind of suited to me and, and, uh, that side of things. And I got a bit of flying experience in there. I flew, gl- uh, flew gliders with them, mm. uh, did a gliding scholarship, um, with them at the age of, uh, 16. And then I got a flying scholarship with the Royal Air Force as a result of my applications and the stuff I'd been so keen with doing it. Um, so I had an application in with the Air Force. Um, and basically I think it was about 16 and there was a, a guy that lived in the village where I grew up in Cornwall, a guy called uh, surgeon commander, Rick Jolly, uh, an amazing guy. Um, you know, really he's, he's, he's quite a, a famous guy in, in the military like novel writing. Mm. He'd, uh, served in the Falkland conflict in 82 and written, he was the, uh, lead, uh, doctor down in um, Goose Green and all uh, that, that sort of area. Yeah. And um, he'd written a book called The Red and Green Life Machine. And so he'd been with the Navy and everything, and, and he was quite high up. And anyway, he, kept, he pulled me. I'd, I'd been friends with his son from primary school. Hmm. And he pulled me to one side when I was about 16, 17, and he said, you know, do you realize that the, the Navy fly as well? And I said, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> but they, you know, they, they fly, yeah. He said, well, he said, I'd like you to put an application in. And I was like, well, I kind of want to go to the Air Force because I want to fly jets. 
And he said, well, you know, we've got Harriers and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but uh, he said, I'll be quite willing to, you know, help you go through with it and everything. So, okay, fair enough, no problem. So, you know, nothing, you know, there was nothing to lose from putting an application into the Navy as well at the same time. So I had a, a, a joint application going in, one for the Air Force and one for the Navy. And um, I'd finished my A-levels. Um, and I'd gone to the Air Force uh, to Biggin Hill to do the air corruptitude tests and the interviews. And it's, a, it's like a, a four-day event that you go. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, they put you through the mill, you know, leadership tests, aptitude tests, maths, you know, all these sorts of things. And then there's like about three or four different interviews with various grades of, you know, like group captains and wing commanders and all these other sorts of things. Mm. So I came back from the, um, the, the Air Force one. And I think I had about four days at home before I was then off to do, to Portsmouth. Uh, to HMS Sultan to do the Admiralty Interview Board, which is like the Navy's officer selection process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a case of, right, okay, fair enough then. So it was almost like, well, I've done the Air Force one, but the Navy, the Navy can't be much different. Right. So I remember getting on the train, getting down to Sultan, and I came back from uh, the the Navy one. Uh, <laughs> just, just quickly while I think about it. I remember being in one of the interviews and one of the questions they turned around, there's like, there's a, there's a captain there, there's a wing, uh, uh, sorry, a commander and, a, and, and, a, and another captain. So there's three guys on this board, big long table in front of me. And there's me just stood on a, sat on a single chair <laughs> in front of this big long table with, you know, these, these, you know, like in the movies, God, <laughs> like gods, gods of men sitting in front of you in charge of your yeah. future destiny. And they turned around to me and they said, um, okay, Mr. Bright, I said, uh, what I would like you to do is, um, as you can see, there's a map over there of the world. Yeah, I'd like you to go over there and uh, tell me whereabouts in the world you could find uh, Navy ships uh, currently uh, deployed. Hmm. I'm thinking, am, am I Navy? I wasn't, uh, I was absolutely shit hot on um on the air force because mm. uh, that was my primary and i, I knew yeah I'd, I'd done my research and stuff like that mm. but i wasn't i'm thinking as i saw as i walking over to the to the map i'm thinking oh <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> yeah. am i going to get this right and i thought okay calm down and i thought right buy myself a bit of time here because i don't want to just freeze so i kind of pointed at the uk <laughs> <laughs> just did a little circle. <laughs> did a little circle around the UK, and I said, "Well, I think you'll find there's quite a few ships actually deployed around this little area here, <laughs> primarily looking at Portsmouth and also at Plymouth, mm-hmm. and a few up in, uh, in, in the submarine base up in uh, Rotterdam." <laughs> safe answer. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, I, I I knew that it'd gone down well because it was kind of like I got a little chuckle. I mm-hmm. could hear it's like from from the corner. And I was like, they heard this little chuckle, and I said, and then I went in and did, yeah, you know, like, okay, we've also got guys that are in the Caribbean and uh, mm-hmm. and that sort of things, and there's a guys that are up in the Iceland Faroes Gap, and you'll find some submarines somewhere right. within the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and stuff well, like that. But it was kind of like the icebreaker was kind of like there. That's good. So uh, yeah, I did my admiralty. Who I came back from that. And then I got, got home from the admiral interview board. My mum handed me a letter and it had been steam. I could, you know, I looked at this letter and it's like from the, from the air force. And I looked at it. I'm like, ah, oh no, oh no. 
I've got a decision. There's a decision. And I, I went to open it. As I looked on the back, I'd seen, you could tell my mum had steamed it open. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and you know, when you look at an envelope, you think, okay, so it's been steamed open. And I looked at my mum's face and yeah. it was like my mum wasn't kind of bouncing around the room. So I'm right. thinking, okay, this is going to be pretty negative. <laughs> mm. So I opened it up and it was like, listen, you know, thank you very much for your application. Um, at the time, at the, the present time, we feel that maybe uh, it, it, it's not the right time for you, uh, but mm. we'd recommend that you come back a, for a reapplication in a year's time. So it was a, it was a, a, a no, but please come back kind of attitude. Yeah, I was like that. Okay, fair enough then. So uh, I went, ah, oh, well, fair enough. Um, anyway, grabbed my surfboard, went down the beach and went surfing. Um, anyway, about a week, week and a half later, the one came from the Navy and, um, I was in as the postman delivered it and it was like, my mum didn't even get hold of this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed hold of the letter and I went out into the garden and opened it up and there was the letter, which I've still got. <laughs> I've, ret- uh, I've kept hold of the letter, um, saying that basically I was being accepted to join the Royal Navy. Um, that year, I think it was only about, um, I think I had about two months notice that I was going to be joining, um, uh, to join, uh, Dartmouth, uh, for officer training as a subspecialization as a pilot. And I just absolutely bounced all around that garden. And at that point there, uh, phoned my dad and said, dad, I made it. It told me mum, obviously my mum was like that. (laughs) And everything. And, uh, I had two months of absolutely hoo-hawing it around the place before I was joining because I didn't need to bother about going and looking for a job or worrying about going to university or anything else like that. Hmm. So, yeah. So was, uh, for, for you guys then, I mean, you're going officer training with no university, um, which for us is pretty much, a requirement over here. I mean, you're going to find your, your onesies and twosies that, that don't, but, but is that, that's pretty standard for you guys to be able to go in, go to officer training. Is there a, is there a time period where guys are expected to go to university or, or what? No, the, when I was joining, it was a case of the minimum requirement and it was a case, you know, you had the minimum requirement uh, to join to join as an officer was you needed to have five GCSEs which are it's like the general certificate of secondary education, which is like mm. the ones that you do when you're 16. Right. Yeah. And then after 16, you then choose to go on and do advanced level or the A level. And then at 18, around about your 18th birthday is when you would, but you could leave school at 16 and then go do college or you could go go to a job or whatever. Okay. So everybody does GCSEs at the age of 16. And the minimum requirement at the time when I joined was that you had to have a minimum of five GCSEs at grade C or above. So the minimum requirement wasn't that high. And there had to be maths and English in there as well. Okay. But whilst that was the minimum requirement, if you went and talked to anybody within the careers office and you said, well, listen, I've got five GCSEs and I want to apply to be an officer, generally they turn around and say, well, yeah, you meet the minimum, but you ain't going to get in with that. <laughs> right. You know, okay. you need to be able to to show a little bit more yeah. that you've got the aptitude and the ability to to kind of thing. Um, so what they would generally do then is they point you to go and join as a uh, junior rate, and you could then work your way up and maybe go up a yardie, as it was called in the navy. 
you know, transfer from being a junior eight to an officer. Um, but yeah, you know, you could, in theory, join as uh, a direct entrant uh, without actually going to university. Now, when I joined, um, there were, hang on, there was myself, there was about four guys that joined straight at the age of about 18, 19. And then the rest of them, of uh, about 35, 35, 40 people, had done university um, to various degrees of success and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the main thing, the main, yeah, excuse me, the, the main thing that they were looking for, this is, I think, why the, the Admiralty Interview Board came, is kind of like the qualifications got you through the door and your right. application form got you through to the Admiralty Interview Board. Yeah. And the Admiralty Interview Board, as I said, was like a four-day uh, event where from the moment you arrived at the gate, you were being scrutinized mm -hmm. for your behavior, your bearing, your aptitude, your leadership skills, and everything. And then for, so from the moment you arrived at the gate to the moment you left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you it's were a four day extremes. Interview. Yeah, exactly. A four day interview. Uh, there was no downtime. It was, you know, it was all, you know, and, and, and that side of things. So your qualifications kind of gave you your foot in the door. And then it was the, your ability at the Admiralty Interview Board that really sealed the deal and whether. So that's why some people could have gone to the Admiralty Interview Board without a university degree and proven themselves. Whilst others maybe needed that university degree to add a little bit more weight to their argument to make sure that they, they were the right stuff. Okay. So you're showing up to start training. I'm, I'm assuming there's some basic officer training and then you go into flight training or is it all mixed up together? Uh, well, you, we arrived at uh, Dartmouth and it was a six as a, as air crew. Um, it was a six month officer training course mm. Uh, the first 13 weeks uh, was basically the um, the hell where we had to share uh, a cabin with another guy for two uh, for, uh, of two mm. so we were in uh, cabins of two and I was really lucky I shared a guy with a guy called uh, Mark Lee uh, funnily enough I had the nickname Bruce <laughs> <laughs> in typical military fashion yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was uh, so I bunked up with him um, in a two-room cabin, and he was an ex-marine, so he'd done a he'd been a marine, uh, so a Royal Marine, and then he'd gone and gone up a yardie to transfer into being a pilot in the, as an officer. Um, and it, he was absolutely brilliant because he knew all the ways to get past. So the thirteen weeks initial training was, you know, it's like you know, right, you've got to go and do. You know, you got uh, nightly inspections of your cabin, making sure that you're, you're, there's no dust on top of the door frame and all the rest of the, the malarkey and making yeah. sure that, you know, your drawers are folded in the right way and stuff. <laughs> so anyway, the, I think the first day we'd gone and got all our gear from the, uh, the stores, you know, the yellow T-shirts, the white T-shirts, the shorts, the pumps, the, you know, all, of the, all of the kit and everything else like that. Mm. And then we were shown how to fold it, how they wanted these drawers laid out and everything, and it had to be thirds and everything. So now we do all of this, and it's like uh, Mark turns around to me at night. He says, right, tomorrow we're going back up to the stores. 
and you're going to get another set of all of your PE kit. Mm-hmm. and you're going to get another set of all of this. And he gave me a list. I was like, well, why do we need to do that? He says, because you've just spent three hours folding that that root, that, that drawer yep. so that it's absolutely perfect. He says, what they can't do is they can't inspect your, your wash bag. Yeah. So what you do is you keep all of your stuff that you're going to wear in your wash bag and you leave everything that's in your drawers absolutely perfect the way that you know it's past muster and every day all you do is you just go with a little bit of sellotape and you just take all the dust off the top <laughs> yeah, that's funny that's funny yeah. you mentioned that because i i remember doing the same thing in military school where we had our top drawer was inspectable and the rest wasn't and yeah, yeah you would just get all the things that you know laid out the way they wanted and and that was it you just left it alone yeah that's funny um yeah it's good insider info to have yeah. from, a, from a guy who's been there oh christ yeah he was an absolute he saved me so many you know so much uh un, unneeded or un, un, unrequired hassle yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah god bless him um so anyway after you've done the basic training mm-hmm. um and you go into so i suppose it's phase two um part of your officer training as air crew was you'd be sent down to Plymouth air, Airfield mm-hmm. uh, to do what was called grading, which was on the old chipmunk. And there was 13 hours on a chipmunk, which was basically just to see if you, whilst you'd passed the air crew aptitude tests, they were computer simulations. And this was actually in a, in a chipmunk, which was a tail dragger, 19, I think it's a 1947 aircraft. Wow. Um, you know, uh, you should start it up with a shotgun cartridge. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. The, 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 basically the, the way to start it, there'd be a, a shotgun car, obviously with no, no lead pellets in it, Sure. but it was a shotgun cartridge. It was inserted in and you actually, uh, used to actually just fire this and it was the shotgun cartridge at the start turning the engine. Wow. And then it would be, you know, everything's set and the shotgun cartridge, then you know, give it that kickstart to yeah. then start the engine. Wow. Um, and it was 13 hours in the chipmunk down in, uh, in Robra, uh, at which point you were then, you'd either pass or fail. It was whether to see whether you had actual ability in the air right. to be able to see if you, you know, you had the ability, uh, the, the, the aptitude as a pilot to be able to you know fly an aircraft and also think outside the aircraft as well a little bit but nothing too intense just it was a kind of like your first chop phase if you will yeah just understanding the basics of aerodynamics and how to control the aircraft yeah yeah um and then after that you came back and completed your officer training and then you passed out at Dartmouth, and that's when you would then go into the actual flying training element of it. So uh, is this at the point where they would split you off to be rotary wing or fixed wing, or, or did you, you guys are all still together? No, no. Uh, basically, everybody would then go to elementary flying training, uh, which was based up at REF Topcliffe up near York, and that was on the Bulldog T1. Hmm. Uh, which was a tandem twin-seat um, light aircraft, prop-driven. Uh, it had a VW Beetle engine in it, if I remember rightly, which has slightly upgraded uh, <laughs> to give a little bit more power and stuff like that. But a cracking little aircraft. I think they use them in the university air squadrons nowadays hmm. um, and stuff like that. And um, you'd be flying out of Topcliffe and you'd do about 60 hours in that. 
Um, and after that, that is when you would then be uh, streamed off to go to uh, fixed wing or rotary wing. Okay. Uh, because you were kind of up, you were almost under the umbrella. You were, we were based at RAF Linton on Ouse, which was a, a training uh, camp for pilots for the Air Force. Okay. Uh, where they were flying the Jet Provost at the time, and they were just about transversing onto the Takano, uh, which was a turboprop aircraft. Yeah. Uh, but they were flying the JPs at the time. How many hours did you fly in that aircraft? In the Bulldog, yeah. uh, 56 hours it was. So, yeah, okay. some guys did slightly more. Uh, generally, it was about, uh, about if you know, you, you do your first solo after about um, about 10 hours was, was kind of like the, 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 the time. If you hit 12 hours before you went solo, you were kind of generally chopped. Mm. Um, I think I did my first solo after eight. Um, and that side of things, and uh, you know, you know, before you even get into an aircraft, there was a month and a half of ground school of you know, how does an engine work? How does a how you know aerodynamics of a of an aircraft and you know, air law, which was absolutely enthralling. <laughs> oh, it sounds like uh, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so while you're doing all this flight training, um, were you guys? I mean, was it like a gentleman's course at this point, or were you still? get inspected all the time and having to march around in circles and how, how'd that work? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. That, that all finished after the 13 weeks. Okay. Um, yeah. In fact, I don't even think it was 13 weeks. Hmm. I think it was for, yeah, it was, I think it was a period of six weeks of the, the bullshit brigade <laughs> as, as, it, as it was known <laughs> as, uh, yeah, the bullshit brigade of, of having to do all of that. Um, uh, you know, and having to do uh, drills and stuff like that yeah. in in Dartmouth, and then after that, it was kind of like we were taken uh, from being in a two cabin environment, and we were given a single cabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, very different to how the junior rates would have done it, because obviously they they, they were vittled in thirty thirty men to a, a crew room and stuff like that, and inspected yeah. right the way up until. Uh, but I suppose because we were classified as officers and you know, in charge of our own destinies and stuff like that, that we were given obviously a little bit more leeway. Yeah. And so yeah. that's another good question. What, I mean, what was your rank at this time? Were you cadets or how did that work? Uh, when I joined, I was a midshipman. Okay. Um, so the lowest of the low. So it, you know, the, that's, that's the rank, I suppose. Okay. Um, and, at that point, so you then pass out and you were so spend time as, as a midshipman two years, but it depended on what age you were when you, you joined as to how long you spent as a midshipman. For me and the other guys that were 18, 19, it was two years. Okay. So you're a midshipman you were, during all the flight training? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, I got promoted up to sub-lieutenant just before I got my wings. Okay. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay, so you finish the, with the fixed wing stuff, and then and then you said that's when they break you out into rotary or, or fixed wing as far as your track, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, all the way through elementary flying training, I'd been, uh, you know, I, I want to go Harriers. I want to be streamed to go Harriers. I want I because it was a very much a case of unless you put your name to the to the fore to say it, then generally it was a case of well, you know, you've got to want to be to be fixed wing if if you're going to go fixed wing, right? So I was like, yeah, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And I got to the end of my course, and the um, 
the guy in charge, um, Jock, Jock Gunning, uh, turned around and he said, he says, you've got the aptitude. He says, but I just need to, you just need to mature just that little bit more before we send you. So we're going to send you rotary. Hmm. You need to do a tour of rotary. He said, and then you can, sh- you can come back and do a smack, uh, six, two, six. I think it was, uh, supplementary air course or something. Um, and you can transfer and come, come to us via after doing rotary wing. Um, oh, so that's so an option like, in the Navy that yeah, you guys could do yeah, yeah, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could swap back. Uh, you could you could get you know you could go later on. Oh, it was okay. it was always a case of you know nothing was ever set in in stone as to where you were going to go. If you showed the aptitude and the ability, then you know there was they 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 they'd kind of okay well fair enough then we'll we'll, we'll sling him over. I mean it's all changed now because yeah. it's all done tri service. Um, it's no longer. I mean, I was I was one of the last ever guys. The last the course I was on on the elementary flying training was the last ever Royal Navy elementary flying training course. Because hmm. um, after that, it went to the joint elementary flying training, um, okay. which was basically the the Air Force and the Navy, and I think the Army were involved in that as well. Hmm. So they were trained. Yeah. So it was it was punched out. I was uh, it's like the full military course. So when it was RNE FTS. It was all military guys, so there was uh, you know, Navy pilots that were training us, you know, uh, that were you know, seasoned a- uh, aviators. And then after that, it was punched out to the civvy world under contract. So these were, you know, it's like captains within the aviator, so civvy side flyers that, that were then training the military, future military pilots. Right. So okay. I was one of the last ones to go through a full military course. Okay. All right. So how, how does that training work? So you were selected to be rotary wing. What's, what's next? Uh, after that was then uh, basic flying training, which was uh, the, the gazelle down at cold Rose down in Cornwall. Um, now the, the, the bloody thing about it is, is that, you know, I finished officer training and then I had like a, a like I think a six month wait until I had to get to elementary flying training. Mm. And then, so it's like, okay, fair enough then. So I'm just stuck around. I was based at, uh, at, at Yeovilton and I managed to, I was lucky enough. I mean, yeah, when you're on holdover, you know, you're, you're kind of trying to get as many you know, jollies in aircraft as you can. <laughs> and I was lucky enough to get attached to 899 Squadron when they went to RAF Wittering. 899 Squadron were the, like, the training squadron for the Sea Harriers. Mm. And I went with them to uh, RAF Wittering. Um, and I was basically tasked with, uh, they had a couple of students were just finishing off their, their training and they do a land away to RAF Wittering. And, um, my job was, uh, I was in a, a Sherpa van, which is, um, like a, uh, just a, a box van and it had a big bubble mm-hmm. canopy on the top. And I was told that I had to go and drive around the airfield and go to the, uh, like the landing spots where the Harriers would come in. And then they'd hover land and I had to go there and just video them. <laughs> so I'd given this big, this big VHS video recorder, uh, drive down the airfield, <laughs> park up next to the, uh, the landing spot of this sea harrier and just have these sea harriers coming in, come to a hover 
forty uh, foot hover and then land in front of me. And my job was to basically just keep the you know, keep the Harrier there so that they could evaluate the video afters in the debriefing room as how the guy mm. had done and what should how his approach was. And then they take off and they bugger on my. So I'm stood next to this. Uh, it was an absolute hoon of a job. Yeah, absolute belter because I'm just you know just belting around this uh, airfield. You know, and uh, just going and stopping and then taking a few videos of somebody coming in and landing a Harrier. I think I'm, I'm, I'm you know, probably about 30, 40 feet away from the actual landing zone. Roaring aircraft coming oh, in. Loud. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm doing that. I was doing that for, for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> an absolute belter of a job. So, anyway, I, as part of it, they, they actually gave me a ride in the Sea Harrier in the, t- in the two seater version. And uh, mm. we were taking off. We took off from Wittering and went down to Yeovilton. And uh, I remember being in the back seat. You had done all the sea drills and all the ejector seat drills and uh, and things. And I was strapped up with the the, the thing on and everything. I was like, ah, yeah. and I'm sat on the runway. And the guy turns around and he said, uh, "Okay, fair enough. Then uh, you're ready to go." And there was another one right next to us, uh, another twin seater with another two guys in. And uh, he says, right, we're ready to go then. And he pushes it up to about 60% and he says, flicks the nozzles and this aircraft just kind of lurches forward onto its nose, mm. <laughs> pulls it back, and then he just like puts it to full power and lets the brakes off. I've never felt acceleration like it and never will again, just the, uh, pinned back in the seat. Yeah. So we go down, all the way down to Yeovilton um, in a, in a twin, uh, two-ship formation come down through the Welsh valleys at low level. So right down in amongst the valleys and stuff, banking all over the place. Get down to Yeovilton and come in on a running break. Uh, Break away and the the, the guy that was with us just goes and lands. And the guy that was flying with me, uh, uh, Simon Short, his name was, he turns around and he says, "Um, do you fancy having a go at hovering it? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I I was 19 at the time. Wow. And I was like, yeah, I'm just thinking to myself, hang on, do I? Let me think about that for two seconds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, he kind of comes over to the hovering place, wherever it was, and he sets it into a hovering. He says, right, you have control. Mm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I've just got these. Con- I mean, it was perfectly trimmed out. All I was doing was just holding the controls, and I didn't move them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and everything. Wow. He says, okay. So he said, fair enough. He says, right now, just increase the, the power a bit and just move up. So I thought, what? Hang on. <laughs> and he put his hands up and he said, look, you can see you've got control and everything. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's like my best ever wet dream, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we did the hovering and stuff. And he says, uh, okay, right. What we're going to do now is we're going to go off the dummy deck. And the dummy deck was, uh, you know, in the in the Royal Navy, we used to have the aircraft carriers that had the the ski lift ramp. Yeah. So they've got a mock up of that down at RAF uh, RNES uh, Yeovilton, or they had um, when when they had the the, the carriers down uh, the Harriers down there. Yeah. And um, he says, right, we're going to go off the dummy deck now. So he he comes onto this this lands on he taxis around he comes onto the dummy deck and i think we were about 150 yards 150 foot or yards or whatever it was away from the end of the the ski ramp Mm. and he turns around to me says um so do you reckon we can get off it from here and i said well (laughs) 
know where to rely. I said, well, I fucking hope so, because you've lined this up. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you know what you're doing, so I'm going to go with yes. Exactly. So anyway, we we go off the ski ramp, we come back around and we go off again and we we just have a a hooning and just basically just treating this like it's a freaking toy Mm. with me in the back grinning grinning like a Cheshire cat. Mm. So we land on and everything like that, shut down the aircraft. Anyway, debrief. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, not a problem at all. Listen, we're going to we're going to just quickly debrief now. Um, you get yourself squared away, and uh, what we'll do is we'll see you in the wardroom uh, later on. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I'll buy you a beer. No worries at all. So anyway, we get down to the wardroom, and we're having a few beers, at which point they turn to around, and um, a guy called Rob Schwab, who was the, the senior instructor, he turns around and he says, so uh, how did you find it, Kev? How, what did you think? I said, I said, uh, once in a lifetime thing. Hopefully, I'll be able to go see Harry. I went. This was because this was before I'd gone to RNE FTS. Mm-hmm. I said once in a lifetime thing. He says, "I said absolutely loved it. Yeah, absolutely amazing." He said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, um, "You know, Simon Short was telling me." He said, um, "Apparently, you did you, uh, you? You know, you hovered it." Yeah. He said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "Did he take his hands off the controls?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, yeah." He showed me his hands. He said, "All right, so you've hovered to see Harry." I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, I didn't move it much. I said, you know, I didn't really hover. He said, okay, just so I know. He said, because um, everybody who hovers a Harrier the first time after they've hovered a Harrier has to do a hover pot. And I was like, what? And I said, yeah, the hover pot. I said, well, what's the hover pot? And he said, well, it's here. At which point he brings over from the other side behind him, which had already been charged. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. This, big tankard (laughs) and i was like well what's in that he said well the hover pot is basically it it can it's a it's a pint of drink and you've got to down it in one and i said well what's in it he said well that's the trick it's been filled up by everybody that was on the squadron at the time they've all added their own little ingredient yeah some grog and i was like oh no (laughs) so it, it, it said you know it's uh, half of its beer. There was uh, so anyway. I grab hold of it. And it's got a clear bottom in it. Mm. So anyway, I grab hold of this and there's chanting going on. So I start swigging it back. And as I'm starting to swig it back, all of a sudden I can just see two white, uh, two egg yolks <laughs> in the bottom because <laughs> it's got a oh, clear God. bottom. Yeah. And I was like that, chug, chug, chug. And I was like that. I'm not going to throw up. I'm not going to throw up. So I managed to get it down and put it back down. It's like, yeah, well done, Kev. Well done, Kev. I was like that. Yeah, well, yeah, great. And it turned around. And next thing you know, he turns around. He goes, um, you went off the ski ramp as well, didn't you? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, <laughs> at which point I went, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said, oh, good. Because you've got to do the ramp pot as well. <laughs> oh, my God. So he had to put, had to do this, this uh, yeah. Oh Christ, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty awesome experience. Yeah, I don't know what was, what was the, yeah, the fact that I was in the sea, Harry. Was it worth doing the two parts? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, so for your for your flight training in the helicopters, uh, you said you you guys flew the gazelle. What what was that like? Yeah, that was amazing. I mean that aircraft was was just so brilliant. It was just you know so responsive and agile and just it was a dream to fly. Mm. You know, it was 
it required a huge amount of finesse to really get the best out of it. Mm. But it was so rewarding to, to, to fly it. Um, it, it was just, it, it was a beautiful, I mean, I just have nothing but fond memories of that aircraft. Um, and, and my time on 705 Squadron, it was, it was an amazing little thing because after 705 Squadron, that, so you get streamed at the end of r and FTS, rotary wing or fixed wing. Mm-hmm. And then you go to BFT and at the end of BFT on the Gazelle is when you get awarded your wings. And once you're awarded your wings, you also then get your flying pay, which was at the time was, you know, that was a substantial increase in wages as well. Sure. <laughs> um, but there was, uh, I, I was with an amazing group of lads that were there because generally when there was a course that was ahead of you and you were the, uh, the, the one that was, you know, so you join and there'd already be a course halfway through their course. So you then do your ground school, which was about another month and a half of learning helicopter avionics and all the rest of it, helicopter principles of flight and all the rest of that. And then you join the flying side of it, at which point the, the guys that were ahead of you were probably about six weeks away or two or three or four weeks away mm-hmm. from actually graduating. And then as they graduated, you'd kind of be – at that point and then the next course behind would be joining as you were kind of moving on that's the way that the system worked hmm. and the guys that i was with down there were you know great bunch of guys the, the instructors were absolutely amazing uh the guy that i was instructed by it was my instructor was a guy called lieutenant tim gay uh unfortunately he was killed in the the guy that was the course behind me he picked up a guy called guy chapman who'd gone fixed wing he'd mm-hmm. been streamed after only fts as fixed wing but he failed at fixed wing mm-hmm. and was then brought into rotary wing and he was the course behind me and unfortunately the pair of them were killed mm-hmm. um in uh in the y valley after a, a wire strike mm-hmm. um as they were low level through the y valley and unfortunately what happened is, is the wires went in between the the rotor disc and the main body right. and took out all the rotating swashplate yeah. control rod. So they had no control and just ended up in a snotty mess on the ground. Mm. Uh. Um, but I mean, we had a, a the 705 was just an amazing time. It's looking back. It was almost like it wasn't a flying course. It was, it was, it was like a jolly, <laughs> if that makes any <laughs> sense. Yeah, my memory, my recollection of it is, is that, you know, we trained hard, we played hard. Mm. Um, I mean, the, there was a place in the in the wardroom called the Flaming Datum, which was like uh, a bar within the wardroom where you could go in your flight overalls. Everywhere else, you had to be in shirt and tie and everything if you went for dinner. Uh. But you could go to this place called the Flaming Datum. And on the walls were, you know, some some AK forty sevens that somebody had managed to bring back from the first Iraq War, and there was rotor, uh, it's like tail rotors, um, it's like you know, yeah, pieces of tanks that were mount- mounted on bits of wood that were put up around this wall with the names of people that had done stuff and shit like uh, all over the place, and it was very much a, a it's like a the, the bar where you could go and relax and unwind. So mm-hmm. we'd have a good day's training. And then we'd all crowd down and so all of the instructors would be in there as well. So it wasn't like an instructor student relationship. Right. It was almost as if it was like being in a unit. We were being wel- welcomed into the fold of 
naval aviation. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't uh, like a schoolhouse situation at all. It's just like you're in a unit and that's how yeah. you're treated. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Um, um, so for the flight training in the Gazelle, uh, I mean, was the Gazelle an operational aircraft in the Royal Navy at that time, or did they just use it for flight training? The, the Gazelle was never an operational aircraft for the Royal Navy. Okay. Uh, it was purely a trainer mm. and used for the display team, the Sharks, mm. um, which, uh, so yeah, some of the, there'd be four or five instructors that were designated for the year to be part of the display team. Um, and I was lucky enough to go away with them to the Portsmouth Navy days. Uh, when I was during my training, I think it was, uh, it's like it was Easter leave or something. I had nothing to do. So I said, oh, I'll come with you and, you know, I'll go a weekend. I think it was, and I'll, I'll come with you and help host or whatever. They wanted a volunteer. So I volunteered and went up to, to Portsmouth with them and, uh, was sat on the, uh, on the caravan. They had a caravan that was basically there. So there'd be a display going along. And I'd be in the caravan mm. talking to people about the, the gazelle and stuff like that. Um, yeah, which was quite fun. So for the flight training in the gazelle, did you guys do anything uh, with ships? I mean, were you doing landings on ships or was it just pure, this is how to fly a helicopter? The the, the training was essentially, yeah, just this is, the heli- this is a helicopter. This is how a helicopter works. Um, so you do, uh, you know, your hoverings, your circuit trainings, uh, sloping ground, uh, what we would call fast stops. Uh, I don't know what you'd call them, you know, where you basically stick it on the tail to, to, to decelerate, decelerating turns mm. and, and that side of things. Um, but on the back of that, we would then do formation flying. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'd be close formations, so three or four ship formations, uh, we go and do some winching exercises. There'd be low level navigation. Uh, one of the trips, which was a, we, it became known as WASX, um, which was uh, a low level introduction flight, which was solo. Mm. And you were basically given a gazelle, uh, to go and fly around the southwest of Cornwall, um, low level, um, on your own for an hour. Yeah. Uh, no route plan, nothing. Just go and fly low level and introduce <laughs> yourself to flying low level. Wow. So that's why it was called the Wazex because <laughs> you were just basically flying around with the collective up around your armpit and the cyclic down by your toes. <laughs> <laughs> All in it. 100, 120 knots. And I mean, we were cleared down to 100 feet MSD hmm. uh, as students on our own. Um, but uh, when I did my flying scholarship, I did it at a Land's End Aerodrome. And um, the, the flight beforehand, you come out, you go out with an instructor, and he turns around, he says, right, you can go. Yeah, this is where, yeah, the sort of areas I want you to go. And uh, we went through Land's End Aerodrome, and he came through doing 120 knots, and he was basically, his skids were clipping the grass. Mm. So uh, I went out, and I came down through, and I approached from the side, the north, well, yeah, so from the north area, and I called him up and I said, look, I'm coming, you know, come in, I'm going to notify you at the airfield boundary. And uh, I came through and again, there was a, it was a grass airfield and there was a tractor that was mowing one of the runways that wasn't in use. <laughs> and I came through, <laughs> came through, collective up here, because so, I knew the airfield because I'd done, you know, 30 hours in a, in a Cessna in it. Yeah. So I came through, I was like, hey, I'm going <laughs> to, 
came through hooning it through and the tractor actually stopped (laughs) 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 stopped as i came blatting through carried on past down and then just a little bit further on is actually land's end and it was a glorious sunny day and i come belting through land's end aerodrome heading straight down towards land's end get to land's end stick it on its left on its left wing yeah decelerate it all the way back and ended up in a hover facing land's end mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then basically just uh, d- decided to shoot off again down towards my neck theater and stuff um we used to such like stories of the guys used to come back because they still left the gun flip you get there it's like a little flip oh, for yeah. the trigger mm-hmm. and they still left that on although it was not actually attached to anything and uh, you had stories of guys coming back and what they used to do is you'd, you'd kind of be coming down through the valley and there'd be a tour up ahead of you. So you'd have to then like, increase to get up over the tour and you'd have walkers that were on top of the tour. And there was one guy, um, I can't remember his name now, but he was talking about the fact that he'd, he'd been coming up this tour, Dave McGowan. He'd been coming up this tour, up towards this tour, creeping up. And rather than keeping his height, what he did was he was going to grease the top of this tour. And anyway, there were a couple of people that were on top of this tour and they could hear the helicopter. You could see him looking around, he said. And he said, and all of a sudden you could see they saw him as he was coming up, up the hill towards them. And they started, you know, waving their arms as people generally do when they see a low level helicopter, waving hello and stuff like that and yeah. expecting somebody. To, and Dave just kept, puts them in his sight, <laughs> flicks the imaginary trigger over. <laughs> pushes the trigger and starts going taka, 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 taka. <laughs> as he creams the top of this uh, uh, the, 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 the tour yeah could have been no more than probably 20 feet and he says but as he got close enough he could see these guys suddenly sort of was like waving their arms quite jovially you know hello this is us this is us and everything and um, as he gets towards the end you could suddenly see their arms starting to s- slow down as if to say what's he doing <laughs> yeah <laughs> before just as he as he's about to cross over the top of the hill they dive out the way <laughs> left and right <laughs> so that was wasex that was one of the things that we we did when we were in the royal navy it doesn't happen nowadays apparently according to dj <laughs> yeah it doesn't sound like uh, something that would survive in the modern times no <laughs> um so how many hours did you guys fly into gazelle before you, you were so yeah it was 90 about just roughly 90 hours Mm. um in in there um at which point after that you'd then get your um your wings and then you would be streamed to go anti-submarine warfare uh links so um or you go to the mark fours which was the jungly squadrons so troop support okay so what did the was the Lynx uh, anti-submarine warfare too? No, the Lynx was pretty much anti-shipping. I see. Um, it was kind of like the asset. So, yeah, the, 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 the Sea Kings were generally aboard uh, the anti-sub. Uh, so you had, you had, within the Navy rotary wing, you had uh, the, the Sea King ASW variant. Mm-hmm. You had the Mark IV jungly troop support variant. So the amphibious assault, if you will, support. You had the Lynx, which was mainly anti-shipping. 
And then you had the AEW variant, which was the baggers. So the ones that just flew up to 10,000 feet and provided, uh, it's like the, the kind of like what the E3 Sentry used to do yeah. for the, um, for the Navy. Yeah. Uh, but after training, you would never get the AEW variation was, was closed off. You had to already have served a tour on the frontline squadron before you went to the baggers. Okay. So, so you're coming out of pinger. flight training, you're going to go with either Link, Seeking, or the other one, the troop. troop. Yeah, jungly. Okay. Yeah, the troop transport. Okay. Yeah. And did you, how did that selection work? Was it pretty much everybody got what they wanted, or was it uh, pretty selective? You you got given an option. You You had two choices to make. And so you could make your choice, your primary choice and your secondary choice. Um, and then depending upon your aptitude would depend on which one. So the, yeah, your, your flying skills would depend on which one you got. So, so how does that work with the, the seeking then? Like, how do you stay in that? Is that all part of the same unit? Uh, so you'd go from 705 squadron. Mm. And again, you'd have about a six month wait before you then would join 706 squadron. Uh, the guys that would go links went off to Portland to 702 squadron. Mm. Uh, they're no longer there now. They're up on, uh, they're at Yeovilton. Um, so on the Wildcats and the jungly guys, they would go off to Yeovilton as well to 848, I think, yeah, 848 squadron. Mm. Oh, no, 747 squadron. Um, I think 707 squadron, sorry. Yeah, so you either went 706, 702, or 707 squadron. So either Yeovilton, Portland, or you stayed at Cold Rose. 702, uh, five squadron the bft taught you how to fly a helicopter mm -hmm. 706 was a conversion to type course if you will mm -hmm. so um consisted i think it was of about 80 hours in the in the the seeking learning pretty much or consolidating what you've been taught at 705 but applying it to a twin engined gas turbine helicopter that weighed about seven times more than the gazelle yeah 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 um, that's a big aircraft. With all, yeah yeah uh you know two two uh free power turbine gnome engines up top um you know four hours endurance at times uh ability mm -hmm. to hyper and all the rest of that you know it was a it was a big step up yeah uh, from going from a gazelle, which was you know so nimble and everything, to something I was flying aircraft that were were older than me. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, what what was that like? That transition from flying something tiny like the gazelle to to something big like the seeking. It was really, really, and and having gone from the gazelle, which was such a punchy little aircraft that you know, mm. and you know, it, you know the the seeking, you know, you couldn't, you were you were basically maxed out at ninety knots. Mm. Um, you couldn't really go above 30 degrees angular bank mm. because the airframe was that old. Um, the, the main, the main beam that was supporting the, uh, the, 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 the gearbox, they used to have little cracks and they would pre-drill, you know, they drilled the tops of the cracks to stop them from spreading right. further up yeah. and stuff. So, you know, you were limited to, to how much you could throw this aircraft around. And I used to, you know, and that's, that was the fun of, I mean, you know, I was still, I mean, at this time I was only still 23 years old. So when you got out of the Navy, did you do any flying on your own? No, oh. no, I, 
I, uh, as I said, I, I kind of put a load of feelers out initially and I thought, well, you know, okay, I'll go and fly for Civi side and, you know, I'll be able to get a job and everything. And it quickly dawned on me with the, the way that the economy was at the time that there was nothing out there. And I didn't have the funds behind me to be able to go and get my own CPLH or commercial license. So I pretty much had to, to put it all to bed and put my, my flying career behind me. And, you know, in the hope that one day, if I ever got the opportunity, I could maybe go back to it. But it never, it never transpired. And I'm 48 now, coming on for, you know, closer to 50 each time. And, you know, the, the body doesn't bounce as well as it used to. And <laughs> to be honest with you, f flying is pretty much definitely a young man's game. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I've the kind of. kind of flying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got mates that are, you know, still in the game. Um, they've, they've left yeah. the Navy and they're now flying civvy side and they've said, it's not the same anyway. It's a different yeah. kind of flying. You know, the military flying was, I mean, when I was in was, you know, right. That's, you know, we, 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 we can do what we want with the military. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Air traffic control. No. <laughs> what do you mean? Controlled airspace? No, we're the military. We're coming through. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, we may not have all the avionics you require of us, but Hey, we're the military and we need to be over there. So mm -hmm. let us through. Yeah. Uh, so there was all sorts of, you know, th there's that side of things. And I don't know, I suppose I'd love to, I'd love to go for a flight again, but to do it as a job or to do it as an instructor, yeah. teaching somebody that's, you know, not really got, because I think that's the thing about the military as well was, is that the fact that there was such a, a great bunch. And the thing I missed most about the military when I left wasn't really the flying. It wasn't the 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 yeah you know, the, the the bullshit that went along with it, the parades and all the yeah you know, the, the pomp and pomposity that went with it. It was the mates that I made when I was in there. Yeah. No, the I think camaraderie that's a, that that's a recurring theme from a lot of people that you know the service. You sometimes have to divorce the the service to the people. Right. So it's like you can you can be disenchanted, disgusted sometimes by by the organization, by the institution. But but uh, typically the, the camaraderie is, is something that people gravitate towards. Oh, Christ. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've I've run pubs for a period of five years mm. and um, everybody that came in that was military there was an instant bond or a connection, be that they were uh, army, navy, air force, whatever. There was an instant connection there, and we always bonded as a, a as part of that. Well, Kevin certainly had some interesting experiences during his time in the Navy, and I'll admit a little jealousy about riding in a Harrier. Now, again, Kevin and the other guests we've had this month are all members of our low-level health discord communities. You can head on over to the website and take a look at that. I appreciate all our guests this month for giving us a little insight into the international experience, and I'm sure we'll explore more of that in the coming months. All right, we'll wrap it up there. But before we go, I want to introduce you guys to Joey Snowden. He's the host of a podcast called No Shit, There I Was. Joey, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we've known each other now for quite a while, and yeah. you started your show, uh, actually, I think a little bit before mine. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I figured it'd be cool to have you on and tell uh, tell my guests a little bit about your show. So what's it all about? Yeah, so um, you know, obviously the uh, it's the the popular way in the military to start your start your stories is no shit there I was. So <laughs> um, it's a uh, it's a storytelling podcast, really. Um, but you know, we cover a lot of issues. Um, sometimes it's topical. Um, most times it's not. It's really just finding folks that have interesting stuff to talk about, and we try to tell about all that through, you know, different stories that they might have. Um, so that's where I try to put the context of everything. Um, but you know, without getting into it, that's kind of the elevator pitch. Yeah. And you've had, uh, what, five or six episodes. No, you've had more than that. Haven't you? How many have you had by now? Uh, yeah, I think I'm up to, uh, 16, maybe 17, something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah my, I'm looking at my app here and it, it, it told me lies, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Around 16. Um, yeah, and they're kind of all over the place as far as topics, mm-hmm. because I know you, uh, you know, you just recently talked to another person that we both know about sexual harassment and assault in the military. And then a little bit before that, you talked about immunization and COVID. Yep. Um, I think, uh, what was it like your first episode? You talked to a guy who was on a tank rollover. Yeah, that, I think that was the second one. It was a, yeah. it was a guy who was enlisted. Um, he's a, his tank went down a hill completely out of control. Um, where was it? Uh, somewhere in the Eastern Block. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was that was a wild episode. My first one was with like a LEO that was attached to my company in Afghanistan. Um, okay. So that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, there's some some wild stories there, and uh, yeah, uh, I definitely encourage people to check it out. And like I said, it's you know it's not it's not aviation specific. Of course, it's not really anything specific. It's mm-hmm. just kind of experiences and stories and, and it's kind of like what we're trying to do here. Just we're a little bit more focused on the aviation side of things, yeah. but uh, where can they find your show at? Uh, so you can literally find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you know, obviously Apple's the big one, uh, Spotify. Uh, but if you just type in uh, no shit there, I was with a, with a comma after the shit. And then, um, or if, if things go completely wrong and you can't find it, I know there's a couple of imposters out there. Uh, you can just search Joey Snowden, uh, this J O E Y S N O W D E N. Um, and you'll, I'll pop up as the, as the author. I do want to say I've had on the podcast, if I were to like find a majority, it's actually like a majority of the folks that are on the podcast have been aviation. It's just really weird, but, um, it's just the truth. Uh, we just have cooler stories. It's true though. Like there's a guy, uh, a Vietnam vet that I interviewed. He, uh, was in, he enlisted or actually, sorry, he got drafted, went to, um, OCS. Uh, he was an infantry platoon leader in Vietnam and kind of a company commander too. He got shuffled into that before he came back. And then he went aviation. They went back to Vietnam as a, as a pilot, which is wild. Yeah. Well, back then they, uh, they weren't kind of pigeonholed into aviation. It was, you were still infantry armor, all that, all that good stuff. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, cool. Well, I appreciate you, uh, coming in and telling us all about it. Everybody should uh, definitely check that out on wherever you listen to your podcast. No shit. There I was with Joey Snowden. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for today. A reminder that the views expressed do not represent the department of defense or any private business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys in a few weeks.